I'm Grant, an engineering and technology leader who will share the secrets of IT with you. Listen up, because we're about to get into it. Hey everybody, it's good to finally be putting out a new episode. I think it's been almost two months, so this episode has been a long time coming. I wish I had a better excuse, but honestly, it's because I've been very busy at work, like most of you all. Ironically, I'm going to talk about hacking in this episode, and I've also been getting things ready for an InfoSec summit where I work. It's over now, but I presented it on our security practices and a few best practices for securing software. So the Uber hack that happened on September 15th is very relevant to my recent work. My teams are also finalizing our fourth quarter plans, so there's a lot in flight that needs my input. In a future episode, I do plan to go in-depth into how my team does planning. I know I have a good method of managing work at the team level, but I can also roll it up to the executive level. You may have heard the phrase, Scrum doesn't scale. I've probably said it myself. And for anybody using Scrum, you can probably see how true that is. However, if Scrum is how a team executes, it can be combined with program management to keep multiple teams in alignment and roll up status for executive review. The catch here is that I need to get what's in my brain out onto paper and into an episode, and that takes time. So if your eyes haven't glazed over at this point, I know it's not exciting to everybody. There will be more to come on that topic soon. And you can skip that episode if it's not really your cup of tea. But enough on that. Today's episode, I call the Uber Hack. Now I want to start off and just give you a 10,000 foot summary of what happened and then talk about each of the steps in depth. So to start, it was a high schooler, I think he was 18 years old, fished an Uber employee and got access to their workstation. On that workstation, the hacker discovered a PowerShell script with a username and password in it out in plain text. It was just a matter of time before they discovered that these credentials had administrative level privileges as well, and if that's not bad enough, even worse, the credentials appeared to give access to multiple systems that Uber owns, including their AWS infrastructure. So if all of that makes sense to you, I think you'll understand this is catastrophic and I'm going to explain what all the issues are here one step at a time. For fans of the TV show and the book series The Expanse, this is the IT equivalent of the Cascade, where a failure of one area leads to a failure in another, and to another, and to another, until the whole system is compromised. Some people say security is like an onion, right? You've got different layers, and together your onion is secure, but each uh, individual layer itself has safeguards to the the next layer inside. So this is what can happen if each layer of an onion is not properly secured. A hacker can make it all the way to the inside. And that's what this hacker did. He made it all the way to the inside. When he was done with his work, when he was done looking around, the hacker posted on the corporate Slack channels a note about the breach so that everybody could see it. He stated he took control of Slack, Confluence, which is a corporate wiki, code repositories, and that he had obtained additional credentials. And this is crazy, right? Like he got it all is what he's telling them. And then he just exits. And this is quite frankly, one of the most embarrassing hacks that I've heard about in recent history. So I want to break this down step by step and discuss what measures Uber should have taken to prevent failure at each layer of this onion. I've shared this analogy before, but I think it does a great job of explaining what security looks like in practice. Say you have a house. The only 100% secure house is one without doors or windows. Nobody can break in if there's no entry point, but I'd also argue that that house isn't very good at serving its purpose either. So we have to introduce points of entry 
or points of weakness that are open to attack. These points of entry simply allow the house to be used for its purpose. Now the next step here is to create countermeasures to defend against attacks that are proportional to the level of security that we need. The stronger the countermeasures, the more difficult it is to get inside the house and use it. So we need to make it easy for people who need to get in to get in, and difficult or at least inconvenient for people who shouldn't be there to get in. So for example, in my backyard I have a shed, and it's got one of those four pin padlocks on it. Those are outrageously easy to pick if you've watched The Lockpicking Lawyer on YouTube as much as I have. But my house, on the other hand, has a deadbolt and a doorknob lock. That's much more secure than my shed, but it's also more of a pain in the butt to unlock, especially if it's rainy outside or my three kids are cranky, screaming at me as I try to get back in, indoors. The difference is that if my shed is compromised, I don't lose much of value. If my house is compromised, then my checkbooks and possibly my family are at risk. So it's worth the inconvenience if I can protect what's valuable. And I think that makes my point clear enough, at least. Uh, IT security is the same way. You protect the assets proportional to the value that they have. Not everybody believes this, okay? Especially those who are probably steeped in security and they think about it day and night. You get a little paranoid and then you start suggesting solutions that really are overkill for locking down and securing systems. But I'm not actually in security. So I'm all about application and product development and like meeting the business need. So I'm kind of a balance here as a software leader and professional. I sit in the middle of not fully business, not fully security. And so I try and balance out what level of effort needs to be taken here to secure this application so that it can't be uh, taken advantage of by hackers, but also without locking it down so completely and fully that it's not usable by the end user. So I do find myself in a situation where I have to find or negotiate a middle ground. Sometimes I just have to comply to policy and that's all okay. That's what my job is, is for figuring out what the best approach to software delivery for the business need is. So anyways, let's just go back to the Uber hack and start talking it through step by step. Number one, people are almost always the weakest link. For those of you who are in the know, please see XKCD number 538. And now, let's look at some statistics. Did you know that 91% of attacks by cybercriminals start through email? Or did you know that 97% of all malware targets users through social engineering? Did you know that 55% of all email is spam? Yeah, we humans are very easy to socially compromise, so we're the primary target to be exploited. This should be inconvenient, but not the end of the world for our company if we get hacked. In this case, the attacker claims that they targeted an individual employee and repeatedly sent them multi-factor authentication login notifications. They continued to do this for over an hour, so this employee keeps seeing these MFA pop-ups and denying them, and eventually the hacker contacted the target on WhatsApp pretending to be an Uber IT person and saying that the MFA notifications would stop once the target approved the login. So these attacks are called MFA fatigue or exhaustion attacks because you get tired of dealing with them. They take advantage of authentication systems in which account owners have to approve a login through a push notification on their device. MFA prompt fishes have become more and more popular with attackers. 
And in general, hackers have increasingly developed phishing attacks to work around two-factor authentication as more companies deploy it. So I can see how this would work. You get annoyed and it's just like you say, okay, just to get the pop-up to stop popping up. And that's just a weakness of human nature. Now I'm going to go off tangent here again. So you're going to get me on a couple of different tangents during this episode. So I hope you'll just kind of go with it. So what I want to do is talk about social engineering here. So I recently took an Uber to an event here in Dallas, and my driver told me that his driver account was compromised recently too. It was unrelated to the Uber hack, but it was another form of social engineering. So this guy's story was that Uber IT support reached out to him and claimed that the ride that he had just accepted as a driver to pick up had canceled their request, but that the system wasn't working, so he never really got the notification of the cancellation. So if he, uh, they requested him to cancel the ride on his end, and they said they'd send him a straight 30 bucks, which was more than the cost of the ride. He would have made about $21, I think, on the ride if he'd accepted it and worked it. But the hacker said, cancel it and we'll just give you a straight 30. And so he's like, right on, man. I get free money here and I don't have to work for it. So he goes ahead and cancels. And so then the hacker told him to log out and log back into the Uber app to fix the system. So when he entered his credentials on the re-login, the hacker got his password and immediately changed it and hung up on him. So this next part I thought was crazy. So after they hung up, they went ahead and changed all of the guy's banking account information in the Uber app so that his paychecks would go and be deposited into their account. So then the Uber driver calls Uber IT support, like the real ones, and they can't help him because technically he gave the system authorization to change his password. And uh, um, over the, for the course of a few days and various IT support people not being able to figure out how to change his password back, he did finally get the situation resolved. But that shows how compromised some of Uber's systems are outside of this big Uber hack that we're talking about. So I just couldn't believe how much effort that these hackers put into social engineering Uber drivers to collect their paychecks. But that's just wild to think that that happened to just some guy I talked to, I think it was last week wild. Anyways, so back to the main story. So let's say my corporate login at work gets hacked because of social engineering. Okay. So I dial a wrong number or I click a hijacked link in an email to chat with someone from the support team. But instead I talk to a hacker like that Uber driver, the hacker still shouldn't get access to any production systems, even though they've compromised my personal corporate account. So this was the first line of failure. An account was breached at Uber through social engineering. Okay. It's dangerous, but it's relatively non-impactful from a risk standpoint if everything else is secured properly. Depending on the account or the person who, whose account was compromised, some inside sensitive business information could get leaked. It's painful, but it's not world-ending for a company. We could just change the password and lock the hacker back out. And this brings me to point number two. A user account was hacked, and they had PowerShell scripts with a username and password in plain text stored on the system. Oh my goodness, that's completely unacceptable. I get that it's convenient to embed your credentials in a script, but good golly, don't do that. Unfortunately, I've seen this happen a lot in my career as well. It's a big enough problem that there are actually tools in the industry that can scan for leaked passwords. GitHub Advanced Security does it on CodeCommit, Spectral and Watchtower scan code bases, and there are more tools out there as well. When I've seen this behavior of embedding credentials in scripts, it's almost always been at less mature dev shops. 
So seeing this happen at Uber is quite surprising to me, but I've never worked there, so I'm just basing this on the fact that they're a bigger and supposedly more modern dev shop, so I just expected better of them. And I can't confirm any other details in the story, it's still kind of emerging, but it could have been even worse. So imagine if that script had been properly version controlled in Git or some other software control system. Then those credentials would at least be semi-permanent in the source, con source code repository, and anybody with read access in the company could have gotten a hold of that account. You may not think of that as a big deal. I mean, we're all friends trying to protect the company assets, right? But I've always thought, and still do, that contractors are probably one of the most risky attack vectors to a company. So if I really wanted to damage or steal from a company, I'm not going to go attack it from the outside. I'm going to go try and get hired as a contractor. Then I'm going to attack it from the inside. I'd be reading and scanning source code internally, poking around at systems, listening to the network, all sorts of stuff. You could probably do that in secret and people would never know it, uh, that you're up to that, that business, uh, especially if you're a software developer by your trade. That's what you're hired to do. So looking at source code all day, that's your bag, right? So I'd be in a position of trust. I'd be given credentials to log into the network and time to analyze and exploit the systems all while collecting a paycheck. It's a long game and probably a much harder route for internal or non-native speakers of whatever language that the country is based in to do, right? I mean, you're not going to have a Russian hacking group who doesn't speak English get hired on as a contract uh, contractor or as a consultant company for an American-based business that only speaks English. Like that arrangement isn't going to work, so you got to think through the logistics here of how one might get hired on as a contractor. But this seems like a golden opportunity for a hacker to take advantage of. So that's my two cents. I'm a little off topic again. Uh, let me take off my tinfoil hat because I think that that is a lot of paranoia in there. But if you, if your world, your bread and butter is information security, those are situations that I think you should be considering when you give access to systems and sensitive data to people who are not full-time employees of the company. So anyways, I guess not following engineering best practices and tracking their code changes to that file was actually a good thing in this situation. But remember, two wrongs do not make a right. It was still bad practice, and uh, I don't condone not using software version control. So on a side note, if credentials are found in your version control system, you need to rotate that password immediately. Usually security engineers want to scrub the version control history as well, but in my opinion, that's not really necessary if you're using randomly generated strong passwords. I'm not a stickler on that though. I'm a realist. Plenty of places don't follow rigorous engineering practices. So go ahead, scrub your histories. It's a small amount of extra work and it makes people feel better. So it's worth it. Number three, the credentials themselves in that script were admin level. So the keys to the kingdom were just left out there for the taking. Production admin credentials need to be stored in a vault and checked out on an as-needed basis with an audit trail of who last used them. Non-production admin credentials need to be tracked and access reviewed periodically, but absolutely no admin credentials should ever be embedded in plain text in a script like they were at Uber. Now, I know someone is listening to this podcast who thinks that obfuscating credentials or running them through a Base64 encoder or something like that is sufficient protection, and that slightly hidden credentials like this are okay to have floating around in your code base. No, never, absolutely not. That is no better than plain text, so please don't do that. Encoding and obfuscating is not encrypting or securing anything. 
you're only fooling yourself into a false sense of security if you believe that's okay. So if you're not familiar with obfuscation, that jarbled word just means hiding it. So you run it through a, uh, a two-way hash function, basically, and you've got your password, which is just some text, and then you get scrambled into a different form. Well, it's reversible, so it's not protection, and that's basically what Base64 encoding is as well. It just has its own specific use, uh, which I don't want to deep dive into right at the moment. But for this conversation, we'll just consider obfuscation or Base64 encoding essentially the same in terms of like hiding a password so it doesn't look plain text. Number four, the admin credentials were reused in other systems. And this part literally steals my energy from me. I'm tired just thinking that somebody thought it was okay to reuse a credential in multiple production systems. I get that it makes it easy for one person to log in to multiple systems, but it's really just bad. If you need that level of ease of use, you should be using single sign-on or SSO. That makes it easy for the human to interact with multiple systems using one sign-on process, but each system then remains secure. SSO works by authenticating that the user is a certain person. A third party then provides a token of authentication, and the user keeps that with them as they move from system to system. By verifying that the token the user carries with them is valid, a system then can authorize the user to perform certain activities. So the token serves as proof of who you are, and the system knows what roles you are allowed to play inside. Then that defines the actions that you can take. So this roundabout way solves the need to log into multiple systems with different usernames and passwords, and it offloads that responsibility to a trusted third party. That's the whole point of SSO. So this is just sloppy, and it shows that Uber didn't see investment into single sign-on as an important enough activity to do. I mean, it's only about, what, 20 years old or so at this point? So SSO is still relatively new and untested tech, right? No, there's no excuse for not using a better system here. So if they're using SSO, they could have done a better job and made it available to more systems. Who knows what the issue here was and, and why it wasn't set up, but there was a better way to do this. And at this point, it's basically game over for Uber. The hacker posted on Slack, and clearly he wasn't lying about what he took or he wouldn't have been able to post it. And uh, that's a lot of damage that he could, he could do with the information he stole. And this case is still evolving, and of course Uber is going to want to comment on it as little as possible. And it's understandable, because when they comment, it kind of reveals their security posture. A security posture, for those of you who don't know, is a company's overall ability to recognize and react to cyber attacks. So obviously talking about this hack will reveal additional information regarding Uber's systems and their capabilities. Shortly after the hack became public, I saw about 100 new positions posted on LinkedIn Jobs for security engineers and managers at Uber. For real, I got a really good laugh out of it. And I'm glad they're trying, but it is a bit too late. We know the security status of Uber, and now I'm sure they're a much larger target for hackers because they recognize just how easy it was to compromise the systems. So I'm sure it's a scramble internally, and my condolences to Uber. They could have definitely done more work before now, though. So obviously, this is extremely expensive for Uber, uh, not just in terms of like hiring people and labor costs or the systems they're going to have to buy or improve or the work they're going to have to do to improve things internally, but this is a massive public relations hit. A company's reputation is sometimes more valuable than money given the industry. When I worked at Southwest Airlines, 
their reputation was actually valued significantly higher than their profit margins. Uh, they, they considered that their currency, not so much as the money each individual flight would bring in. So I don't know what Uber's value system is. Again, I've never worked there. Uh, I am empathetic to their situation, but this was bad on so many different levels, at least how I understand the hack from what has been shared with the news. Now, again, I am a realist. I said that uh, earlier and maybe a few times in this episode, but we can never fully protect ourselves from every single data breach. Remember the house analogy from before but we can mitigate a lot of them and make it not worth a hacker's effort. It's like people running away from a bear if you've ever heard that joke. You don't have to be the fastest person in the group, you just don't wanna be the slowest. And the same is true for security in some respect. If you're the least protected company, then you're the easiest target. If you put up resistance, then hackers may prioritize other weaker targets where the effort versus payoff for them, that ratio is higher. So that's the Uber hack story at the moment. I'm sure it's going to further develop. And if it does, I may address that in another episode or maybe just tweet about it on Twitter. So I've got a whole backlog of episode ideas that I need to get to. But if there's a topic that you really want me to cover, please drop me an email at hello at grantdryden.com or tweet me at tweets of grant or connect with me on LinkedIn. I would love to talk more. So thank you so much for listening and I will see you again next time. I'm going to go to the next one.